You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Atul Gawande. This program originally aired in 2017. Thank you. I'm not going to be able to live up that to, to that introduction. Just warning you right now. Um, this, I have a lot of friends in this audience. Thank you for coming out tonight. And um, I wanted to dive into, you know, the death book by, um, <laughs> by reading a little bit from it. Okay? So I'll start there and then uh, tell you a little bit about what I was on about in this. I learned about a lot of things in medical school, but mortality wasn't one of them. Although I was given a dry, leathery corpse to dissect in my first term, that was solely a way to learn about human anatomy. Our textbooks had almost nothing on aging or frailty or dying. How the process unfolds, how people experience the end of their lives, and how it affects those around them seemed beside the point. The way we saw it and the way our professors saw it, the purpose of medical schooling was to teach how to save lives, not how to tend to their demise. The one time I remember discussing mortality was during an hour we spent on the death of Ivan Illich, Tolstoy's classic novella. It was in a weekly seminar called Patient Doctor, part of the school's efforts to make us more rounded and humane physicians. Some weeks we'd practice our physical examination etiquette, other weeks we'd learn about the effects of socioeconomics and race on health, and one afternoon we contemplated the suffering of Ivan Illich as he lay ill and worsening from some unnamed, untreatable disease. In the story, Ivan Illich is 45 years old, a mid-level St. Petersburg magistrate whose life revolves mostly around petty concerns of social status. One day he falls off of a, a stepladder and develops a pain in his side. Instead of abating, the pain gets worse and he becomes unable to work. Formerly a, an intelligent, polished, lively, and agreeable man, unquote, he grows depressed and enfeebled. Friends and colleagues avoid him. His wife calls in a series of ever more expensive doctors. None of them can agree on a diagnosis and the remedies they give him accomplish nothing. For Illich, it is all torture, and he simmers and rages at his situation. What tormented Ivan Illich most, Tolstoy writes, was the deception, the lie, which for some reason they all accepted, that he was not dying, but was simply ill, and he only need keep quiet and undergo a treatment, and then something very good would result. Ivan Illich has flashes of hope that maybe things will turn around, but as he grows weaker, and more emaciated, he knows what is happening. He lives in mounting anguish and fear of death, but death is not a subject that his doctors, friends, or family can countenance. That is what causes him his most profound pain. No one pitied him as he wished to be pitied, writes Tolstoy. At certain moments after prolonged suffering, he wished most of all, though he, might, he would have been ashamed to confess it, for someone to pity him as a sick child is pitied. He longed to be petted and comforted. He knew he was an important functionary, that he had a beard turning gray, and that therefore what he longed for was impossible. But still, he longed for it. As we medical students saw it, the failure of those around Ivan Illich to offer comfort or to acknowledge what is happening to him was a failure of character and culture the late 19th century Russia of Tolstoy's story seemed harsh and almost primitive. Just as we believe that modern medicine could probably have cured Ivan Illich of whatever disease he had, so too we took for granted that honesty and kindness were basic responsibilities of a modern doctor. We were confident that in such a situation, we would act compassionately. Instead, what worried us was knowledge. While we knew how to sympathize, we weren't at all certain we would know how to properly diagnose and treat. We paid our medical tuition to learn about the inner processes of the body, the intricate mechanisms of its pathologies, and the vast trove of discoveries and technologies that have accumulated to stop them. We didn't imagine we needed to think about much else, so we put Ivan Illich out of our heads. Yet within a few years, when I came to experience surgical training and practice, I encountered patients forced to confront the realities of decline and mortality, and it did not take long to realize how unready I was to help them.
I wrote uh, Being Mortal, spent four years or so writing it, to learn how to do better in dealing with the reality of mortality. How far should we go in fighting the consequences of an incurable cancer or an organ failure or just the um, happenings of old age? I saw a man, for example, with an advanced prostate cancer. It had spread to his spine uh, despite previous prostate surgery and then continued to spread despite two lines of chemotherapy that, um, that they'd tried. And so now he was in the hospital. His legs were weakened and becoming unable to move. He'd become incontinent. And now the question became, what should we do? And I think the interesting question is, what do we all think we should do? What do we feel should happen now? What do we want to have happen now? Should we do something for him, anything that we can find? Or do we, quote, keep him comfortable? And what people hear is, do we fight or do we give up? We had, he had come in and I was seeing him at that time when I was a junior resident on the neurosurgery service in my training. And I had to go see him because he had been scheduled for spine surgery to take out the tumor that was compressing his spine. And I needed to ask his permission and go over the risks and the complications and the dangers. And um, I had my doubts. Were we doing the right thing? And how would I know? Well, in the end, he underwent surgery. It was something like 12 hours long. They got the tumor out. The surgery was successful, but the patient died. <laughs> he was two weeks in intensive care. He never really woke up again after that operation. He had chest tubes and breathing problems and one thing after another, and finally, his son, who was anguished the whole time sitting by his bedside, said enough. And we unplugged the ventilator and let him go. And I thought, and I wrote about at that time, and I wrote about, this was early in my start of my career writing, and I said that I believed he'd made a mistake. He'd chosen wrong. But now looking back on it, and it's been some 15 years since I wrote about it, I, th I now think surely the mistake was what we had done. Having seen many people go through the cycle and thinking, oh, we're making, you know, making the wrong, wrong choice here. Um, I didn't know how do we get out of that situation? How do we come to the better choice? And in the process, I ended up interviewing more than 200 patients and family members about their experiences as they cope with a terminal illness or the, the difficulties of, of the frailty and advances of aging or um, chronic illnesses that are just getting worse. And what I learned along the way that the story about how we deal with the reality of mortality is not really a story about dying. It's actually a story about living, that all the best stories in this is how do we live in the face of mortality? And the lesson that came out of it was that people have priorities in their lives besides just living longer. It's kind of duh. <laughs> we have reasons we want to be alive. Those reasons are different from person to person and they change over time. And so what we need to do is to ask people, especially when they have a serious life-limiting illness or are dealing with frailties of aging, we have to ask people what those priorities are if we want to align with what matters to them, if we want to make sure that the care we provide is serving what their goals are. Otherwise, what we get is suffering, suffering like that man that I just told you about. We never discussed with him. I realized the mistake was not his choice. The mistake was that all along the way, we'd never discussed the possibility with him that this may be what happens, that he might find himself in this situation. We didn't ask him 
What were his priorities that he had? What did he think was possible? I wish I'd known to ask him, and I might have learned that maybe he thought that the priority was to cure him, and then explain that this wasn't the option that would happen by taking that spine tumor out because there tumor, was tumor everywhere. Or he might have said, my goal was to go home again. And then we would have had to explain that no matter what we did with the tumor, it was not going to let him return to his apartment living alone, independently, totally taking care of himself because he was now wheelchair bound. And we had to, we had to learn what really made life worth living for him and how could we serve that. What I found in talking to people about their stories is that when somebody has asked them what their priorities are besides just living longer, it is transformative. It's transformative in ways that allows people to tell their story of how they want to live whatever comes. I learned to ask questions like, how, um, what's your understanding of where you are with your health at this time? What are your fears about what may be to come? What are your hopes for the future? What are you willing to sacrifice and not willing to sacrifice for the sake of more time? What's the minimum quality of life you'd find acceptable? I tell the story of a man who said, in answer to those questions, well, if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television, that is good enough for me. <laughs> I'm willing to go through a lot as long as I get to do that. But if I can't do that, let me go. It's the best living will ever. <laughs> My dad got a brain tumor in his brain stem and his spinal cord. And as we began talking about this thing that was coming, neither one of us want to, wanting to discuss what it really meant. I'd been writing this about, I'd been writing about what I was trying to learn from talking to these people. And I asked him, what's your understanding of where you are with this? What do you think this means? And he said, I'm going to die. And he put the words on something that we didn't think either one of us could say. And then he said, but we don't know how long. And you know, talking to the doctors, it was a slow-growing tumor. So was it months? Was it years? We didn't know. It could be a very long time. And then I asked, I said, I told him about the guy who said, well, if I have, can eat chocolate ice cream and football on television, and I see football on television, that'll be good enough for me. And he said, no way is that good enough for me. <laughs> First, his goal was he wanted to do surgery. He wanted to not sacrifice anything that would keep him operating. And then later, as the tumor progressed and his hand became paralyzed and he did have to stop operating, the treatments he tried to that point had kept him going on that goal as long as possible. Then he had to think, now what is my goal? And he realized what he loved about surgery. He didn't think he could live without surgery. And he realized what he loved about surgery was helping people and being with people and connecting. He's a guy who had people over for dinner and He's extremely social. He had people all over almost every night. And that was living for him, he realized. It was being at the family dinner table with family or friends, talking. And he said, if I can do that, that I would give up a lot for that. But if I can't, then just make sure I'm not in pain. And then as we kept that conversation going, that turned out to be true again and again and again. And it allowed us to get to an extraordinary and different place. Because it, the result was he spent the last months of his life, even as he became quadriplegic, even as choices came of he began to have some difficulty breathing and what would he be willing to go through and what he wouldn't. Well, we could always ask, will this option allow him to stay at the family dinner table, able to keep on talking and do what he need, wanted to do for a good life? And when, he, when that couldn't happen, then it was just control the pain. And he had five months, even with quadriplegia, where he was a person and not a patient. And that was an extraordinary thing to see. And I hadn't been making that possible for my own patients. And understanding 
that it started with such a simple thing, asking people what mattered to them and not waiting until crisis comes. You realized, I realized, it was not just at the end of life this mattered. This mattered any time we began to find we needed help along the way. The course of life is long now. We get to live, if we're on average, if we're lucky and get the right care, about 85 years. Of course, there are people where it's a lot less than that. And then, of course, there are people who it's longer. But we, have, we live longer than ever, in better health than ever. And yet, at the same time, our health will diminish. Our abilities will decline. We will have a period, on average, about eight years of needing help because we'll be, have dependencies. And we are not asking what matters to people. I interviewed people in nursing homes. And they were miserable because no one had ever asked them. They wanted privacy, but they weren't given any. People would just walk in the door um, with no, you know, not even knocking. That they would be assigned a roommate with no choice about who you're going to live with that you would be told when to go to sleep and when to wake up. You'd be given instructions about what choices about food you had and did not have. You'd be, you'd, you would have, uh, you couldn't bring your own furniture because it wasn't safe. What does this sound like to you? Prison. And that's how they experienced it. What do people say, what did my wife's, wife's grandmother say whenever we visited her four years into living in an assisted living facility and eventually needing the, the full-time nursing component. Every time we saw her, I said, when will we get, when can I go home? And it broke my heart because she felt like she was in prison. She did not feel she was home. And what makes it home is having a place where you could express what your priorities are besides just safety and survival. I tell the story of Bill Thomas, who, who um, eventually became what he calls a, a nursing home abolitionist. <laughs> and his first radical campaign was he was the medical director of a nursing home. And he decided, what if we let people have pets? And he went to battle to let people have dogs and cats. He brought in 100 birds <laughs> for people. Like, you could have a bird, have a bird, have two birds. <laughs> and people went ape, like staff. No, it's a terrible idea, and director, the directors, you know, and the regulators, like, it's not safe. What if there are people with allergies? Who's going to clean up the poop? <laughs> but what he was saying was that having another creature in your life was meaningful to people. It, it allowed them to have something that gave love and they could give love to. It allowed them to have responsibility. It allowed them to contribute and connect, and in fact, he got everybody convinced, and doing it allowed them to realize that the use of antipsychotic and antidepressant medications dropped by a third, and they lived longer. It's a paradigm shift. We've had a 50-year experiment in medicalizing mortality, setting our goal on the narrow focus of controlling disease, and we had no view of the arc of life that we're trying to serve. Our goal is ultimately not a good death, and it's not no death. Our goal is a good life all the way to the very end. Achieving it requires recognizing that sickness or frailty does not preclude a life worth living, but that requires communicating speaking about what you and those you love require for that life worth living. What I wished we'd asked that man was, what do you love? What is a good day for you? And then let's make sure that whatever we're doing, we don't sacrifice that, but instead make it possible. Learning this, it was the first time I felt competent and then confident in talking with people in these critical moments. I realized the question wasn't whether they wanted to fight or give up. It was what they wanted to fight for and how to best align with those goals. I never thought that these would be some of the most gratifying and meaningful conversations I would have as a doctor. But that's what it turned out to be, and not just as a doctor, but as a son, a sibling, 
a friend. Thank you, and I look forward to the conversation we'd like to have. I'll turn it over to Dreadnought and be back to you with Virginia. <laughs> exactly a feel-good book, but there are so many things that you just talked about. These human elements, um, what is the Onion headline? World death rate holding steady at 100%, I think it is. <laughs> so this is a conversation that, you know, I, I, I don't think I've ever gotten so many questions that are so long. People are telling their stories. I wonder if that, for you, gets emotionally exhausting at times, hearing people's stories about loss and aging and death. No, because you know what the, the coolest part to me is that I found that these stories that seemingly are about dying are really about living and the stories that people want to tell are either where um, you know sometimes they're painful stories about the fact that there wasn't um, people weren't listening to to what mattered to people but then a lot of times they're just beautiful stories of being able to um, really be with people, they, life has an arc, and uh, I think we've neglected the fact that the arc is an arc of a story itself. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you know, the painful part, for example, of that patient I talked about, his name was Joseph Lazarus, was that he never got to wake up. He never got to say goodbye. He never got to say, I love you. He never got to say, I'm pissed off at you. I mean, you know, like, he, he never got to leave a message. And for his son, it was traumatizing for years later, in fact, people who die in ICUs that have never gotten to wake up again, people have PTSD six months later. And um, having the good story, one where you have your choices, you get to be at home even um, as you come to the end, uh, express your legacy, those things that matter to you, evidence that not only for them, but for the family, the likelihood of depression and anxiety at six months later is lower, PTSD symptoms are lower. So I, I find that the stories that people tell are so great, they're full of character and full of purpose. Well, there are people like Bill Thomas that you mentioned who is up in New Berlin, New York, that's where he began, yeah. um, letting in the menagerie, I guess <laughs> the way, is the way we would put it. But he faced a lot of resistance, and you mentioned that, not just from the medical establishment, but also from his staff, also from people who were asking questions about lawsuits, for example. What about, what about privacy versus security? And you found a number of different models that challenged that or played with that. Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, and I think the thing to understand was he, what he was pushing on was understanding what the goal was. So it wasn't like these were bad people. You know, they, uh, one nursing home administrator I directed, uh, that I spoke to, who was also part of trying to change this world, said, you know, the people who make the decision about whether an elderly person is going to be in a senior retirement community or an assisted living or in a nursing home um, are most often the adult children of that person. And they have brought them kicking and screaming to this place because they think they're not doing well at home and they're not safe. And so they come, and their goal, their number one thing is that I want a place that I know mom or dad is going to be safe. And what, he, what the administrator said was, um, safety is what we want for those we love, but autonomy is what we want for ourselves. And that the challenge is that what they're asking for is not what actually makes the family, is about a good life for the family member. And Bill Thomas was pushing hard to say, we can serve safety and we can serve survival, but we, that doesn't, that's not opposed to the idea that we can serve your quality of life. He called it the three plays of boredom, loneliness, and helplessness. There's no reason that because you're in a wheelchair, you can't still grow and have purpose and have contributions that you have to make. Even um, with dementia, you can have joy. I visited one place where um, I met an 85-year-old who had Alzheimer's, it was advanced, and uh, she was on a medically pureed only, a medically ordered pureed food only diet. 
And um, it was because so, you know, she wouldn't be at risk of choking. And, um, uh, and so she would be caught stealing cookies from her neighbors. <laughs> and she'd hoard them. And then they would take them away from her and then write her up. <laughs> you violated the rules and they'd notify the family. And you just want to say, let her have the damn cookies. She's expressing to you what her joy is. And we, ha you know, we have to give permission that it, not only permission, demand that it's okay to listen to that. And that the, the children and the, and, the, and the older person who comes in should have an expectation that you can have joy in your life, you can have purpose, you can have fulfillment. And there are places um, uh, that have been designed around it. Um, should I tell you about one? Okay, you can tell us. Yes, tell us about one, please. Okay. I would love to hear. Bill Thomas went on to build one of them called a greenhouse. So he created a new model where he went further than just bring pets. He built them in a house model, not built around a nursing station, but around a kitchen and a hearth. 10 to 12 people living in a circle. Um, same price at, that Medicaid covers. And in that, uh, built around the kitchen. And in that kitchen is a refrigerator. And in that refrigerator, you can go in there and take out what you want. That was a revolution. You know, people freaked out. Diabetics can go in the refrigerator and take out a soda? Yes. <laughs> you can take that risk. And, uh, and how do we give permission for that? And how do you, you know, and basically, you know, he created a whole system of negotiated risk agreements. I'm willing to take this risk of having a soda. Or give permission that my, you know, uh, person who can't speak for themselves anymore, my, my mother, my father, that we can let them do that. Those are these little things, but powerful. And those people start to say, I am home, when you start to have those choices. One of the people who ends up in one of those homes, the greenhouses, is a man named Lou. Now, you tell his story. He and his daughter, Shelley, he says to her, never promise me you will never, ever let me end up inside of a nursing home. And she is fighting exhaustion. I mean, it's really difficult. There's one thing after another. And this is a story that comes up, of course, a lot when you're talking about somebody who's left alone, they want independence, but their body is becoming more frail. So you are, in a sense, or asking doctors to treat an entire family system. And that means appealing to the middle-aged child on some level, doesn't it? Because they're the people who are making the decisions. Well, so yes, it was, it was serving the fact that, you know, so Shelley and Lou, at home, at battle over everything from how loud the TV is to, um, to the fact that, you know, how do I make sure he's, he has the company he has. He, he was not totally happy at home, and, um, but no imagination that there could be a life that might be better than that. And then you arrive at one of these places Bill Thomas had designed. It actually is up here in Chelsea, Massachusetts. And, um, and it was amazing because it's, it, you know, you had a private room, but you had a community. You you had space to like not be social, but you had space to be connected and social with others. And people were asking questions like, "What do you actually like to do? And what purpose and role can you play in this community? Um, how do you play your part?" And you know, he only died just this past year, and um, and it was a relief for Shelley, who had to work full time herself. Her husband ha was working as well. And, uh, but could feel that there was a caring place and connected in with family, could bring the dog around, could you know, be part of all the things that really mattered to him. And he really did lead a good life all the way to the very end in his mid-90s. And you asked her at one point why he went into a nursing home before that. Why did you do that? Why did you let him go to that place that he didn't want to go? And what was her answer? Yeah, and I and I think you you probably you just probably just read it, which and I wrote wrote it five years ago. Um, but uh, <laughs> what I remember. <laughs> Should I just uh, narrate no, this you for say, you? Exactly. Um, what I remember is she said, you know, she remembered visiting this place, and the, you'd visit, and the people were slumped over uh, in their wheelchairs, lined up in the hallway, where, so a nurse could watch them the whole time, and she was just depressed by it. But she said. Um, at least they're safe and that that was she felt obligated like I have to put him in this place and he he was miserable get me out of here get me out of here I have to get home and um, 
and she, you know, her heart broke and she felt like, but I just, I'm doing the right thing by him. And it was only kind of by luck that she found out that there are other kinds of places, otherwise she'd never have known that there was some other option than a world that was just a regimented prison. Well, there are a number of questions here from people on either side of that. You know, those who are, um, this one, very <laughs> long, so I'm gonna condense it. After years of trying to convince my mother to begin seeing a gerontologist, uh, she finally made an appointment. The gerontologist basically told her that she had to stop driving and she fired him on the spot. <laughs> How do I talk with my stubborn mother, I think I would say, is the question. Because, you know, we're talking about a lot of different dynamics here at play. A lot of people, probably in this audience, are boomers. They grew up being independent. We value independence above all things. How do you let go of that? So my mom and I have been having this conversation. <laughs> she turned 80 this year. At the end of the book, my father dies, and now it's been five years since my dad's death that she's been rattling around in our big house in uh, rural Ohio. She had a crash of the car going to the Rotary meeting. She, um, it was, uh, we laugh about it now. She was in the parking lot, and she thought she, um, was hitting the brake and of course hit the accelerator and it bashed into the building and the airbag went off. And then she tried to pretend like nothing happened. She just shut the door, <laughs> went in, and she's covered in the white powder and black and blue, like the whole meeting stops. And she didn't realize like this was, and so of course I got the call. And, uh, and there are certain moments like these that would happen. And, and you know, we tried to have the conversation about like car key. but we had already started this conversation about what are your priorities, what really matter, what, what, are you, what are your fears if you start declining? And she'd had a fall, she'd, um, uh, with a broken wrist and some vision problems that appeared. And what we talked about was what she feared was losing freedom and control and choices over the story of what happens to her. I thought her fear was losing her home and losing the community, but it was losing choice. And so, um, I had her visit some of the places that were in, there were, in rural Ohio, there weren't those options. They were kind of tough places to go, but came up to Boston and visited some of the places. She ended up choosing one that was nearby to go to, and, we, and, uh, and the, the clincher were two things. Number one was um, that they had her have lunch with a group of women that were sort of amazing, and one of them was a scientist who they, it was in her mid-80s, and they'd arranged transportation for her to still go to her lab meetings and, and participate once a week mm -hmm. that she could still be part of the community. And she thought, this is a place that cares enough about that. And number two, she figured out how to order Uber. <laughs> and she taught everybody in the senior retirement community how to order Uber, and then when Uber screwed up, they switched to Lyft. <laughs> and, that is their freedom. Like, you know, like, where are you going in your lift? And she's like, why do I have to tell you? <laughs> and those kinds of things are, have been the powerful reason, like, she didn't give anything up. On the other side of that, here's a note from somebody who, my wife and I are approaching an age where we may need some help, and he said, uh, his daughter is the only logical choice, but soon her children are going to be away at college. So there's a hesitation in asking for help. And there is a way that this has been become a sort of medicalized problem, that we have evolved into a system unlike the one that your grandfather, who lived to be 110 in India, um, had support around him. So there are a lot of different pushes here. Yeah, and they're really interesting because I had a certain nostalgia about the way my grandfather got to live. You know, he, he did. He died closing in on 110, falling off of a bus and hitting his head. <laughs> like he was still taking buses in India as, you know, as, as a Herculean feat in and of itself. And, but in reality, if he was in the United States, he'd have been in a nursing home for 20 years because by the 90s, he needed help with getting dressed and with uh, bathing and with some um, things that he had to do to get through the day. He was getting harder to handle finances and so on. But he was surrounded by a multi-generational family. He sat at the head of the family dinner table. They came to him for business advice and, and other things like blessing marriages and so on. He was respected as the elder. 
Um, and uh, he used to, you know, he, had, he had, would walk his fields. He had 200 acres. Uh, and when they uh, became successful enough to become 200 acres, he then would ride his horse around the field. And he insisted on doing that until he was 108. So they got him a smaller horse <laughs> that you could do that safely. And it was the coolest thing. But then you realize it worked because it enslaved young people, especially young women. They were the ones who had to live at home, stay and surround him, serve him, take care of him in all of those ways. And the modernization of India was just like the modernization of America in the 19th century. As we moved beyond the agricultural economy, it was we gave young people freedom to marry whom they want, to live where they want, to do the work they want, and to, and to go out in the world. And that's happening in India just like it happened at the end of the 19th century in the United States. And so we needed to move to a place where you recognize that that Nostalgia is just nostalgia. It is just about two generations not living well together. When people got money, when they got Social Security and things like that, we actually did not choose to live together that way. The elderly were as eager to move away. The, 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 the elderly did not want to live in their kids' home under their kids' rules, and the kids didn't want to live in their home under their rules. And so we ended up living in what, what, I, what sociologists call an intimate distance, near but not too near and in our own spaces uh, when we could afford that. And so, um, you know, that recognition that we want mechanisms that we can be a little closer together and connected. You know, the amazing thing to me is my mom made one of those choices it, it, that she moved to a couple miles away, kind of perfect distance, <laughs> and, um, and we could be there together. But she could have her life, we could have our life, and know that even as she's now past 80, she has issues, that, um, that she could get the help she needed, but still have autonomy and choices along the way. You're listening to a conversation with Atul Gawande, recorded live for Writers on a New England Stage. I'm Virginia Prescott. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. You're talking about the evolution from the 19th century, especially in the United States, into the 20th century when aging and death became a medical problem. Talk to us a little bit about that evolution which you trace in the book. Well, there's two things. One is, so in 1900, we forget this, the average person only lived to their mid-40s, had seven kids in the family. To, to, you know, we added 35 years or so to the life expectancy of um, of people in the, in the developed world. And that created also a whole change in what the experience of um, living was like. That, um, you know, one person described it that the way mortality worked was that you mostly experienced illnesses as, as something like bad weather. You either got through it or you didn't. <laughs> and, you know, it's like I live, I live, I live, then some terrible event happens and I die. And, you know, it was very neat and clean. There were some, you know, some conditions that weren't quite that way, like TB, that were kind of, you know, viewed with horror because you didn't get to live that way. Well, now we live an arc of life where we live longer than ever, that um, we also live healthier than ever, and yet we do have those eight years or so where you need, you need help and dependency at, at, at the end, which doesn't mean you don't have a life worth living. And so the medicalization happened when um, we develop the capacity to create, to find solutions. And so now we turn to health to ask, how can I fix the disease, control it, put it under control, and let me keep living the way I am. But we did not come to a philosophy about how do I use that capability to make it so I'm not just achieving survival, but the things that really matter to me most. So recognizing that I have this arc, and that part of it, that it will come to an end, but that it's possible to live as good a life as possible all the way to the very end, and how do we activate that? And that's where people like geriatricians and palliative care doctors are kind of on the periphery. They're like the outsiders of medicine, but they're doing something very powerful by recognizing that serving and recognizing that, that there are, that people make choices and want, want help and medical capability and technology to enable them to live to, for those purposes and those goals that they've got besides just surviving. They've got reasons to be alive and that serving them can make their lives better and even um, uh, doesn't shorten their lives, often extends their lives. Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's a question here about precisely that, that people are living so much longer and many do not have the financial resources for care. Is it possible to still have choice? And I would add to that the question of, you mentioned in the book that so few people are actually graduating from medical school with geriatrici- as geriatricians, 3%, because the economics don't make sense. So talk to us a little bit about the economics of aging in place or in homes. Yeah, I think there's a couple things about this. One is that um, we haven't, rec- so we've we created the nursing home as a kind of extension of the hospital. Even the term nursing home, the idea was that you are trying to nurse people back to health and recovery and that they would get better. Instead of recognizing that um, people needed supports to be able to move on and the and, and supports to just live life, that, that this is a normal course of life that, um, that we have. Now, um, in being able to afford it, then we have to be more creative and understand that, like, actually the medicalized version is much more expensive. It's not more expensive to serve people's purposes. Here's an example. I write about um, a pl- something called the Villages Movement, which started in Beacon Hill, called mm-hmm. the Beacon Hill Villages, and they have uh, a subscription that you sign up for. It's only about a couple hundred bucks um, for the year. And that allows you to have a set of basic services like a handyman. That one of the biggest reasons people become unsafe at home is because you may not be able to change the light bulbs or you may not be able to fix the broken garage door or address some basic needs of grabbing, being able to use certain technologies that let you, uh, you know, learn to use Uber and, and get around in certain ways. And that program, that capability also created a community of people so that um, people have uh, you know, a community where people who are interested in politics would get together at the local Starbucks and, uh, for a few hours a day or, or do other things, um, have a caseworker check in on you. And that kind of program has allowed people with a very low cost stay at home demonstrably longer, happier, in better health, and, uh, and be able to, and safely. Uh, serve those purposes. But we've ignored those kinds of capabilities because we want to pretend the only good life is one where um, I'm the same as I was all my life. I'm young. Um, Instead of recognizing that we have these things that happen and it's possibly in fact, not only possible, here's the other thing to add in. Even though our health declines, even though our functions start to lessen, I have a whole chapter on a Stanford professor named Laura Carsonson who's followed people across the course of their lives and they um, and measured their emotions and measured their abilities and what you find is that even though their health declines, they become happier as life goes on. They're more likely to be fulfilled. After age 65, you're more likely to have love in your life than before. That um, people, their likelihood of anxiety and depression goes down. They become less focused on acquisition, on having all the toys, the biggest house, the biggest cars. Um, Instead, you become focused on more intimate relationships, closer friendships, and it makes people more fulfilled. And the idea that we're serving a course of life where even though some functions decline, you actually um, are more satisfied and can have a more fulfilled life, uh, that we haven't recognized and served, and it isn't so much about money, it's about recognizing that it's not, um, it's not pacemakers, it's uh, having a counselor like a palliative clinician or a geriatrician who brings the capabilities that help you do those things. Well, that's such an important part of the book, this idea just having the conversation with somebody who is going into assisted living or senior care of any kind of matter. There's some data that you have on how well that actually eases the anguish of death. And I'd love to hear more about that. And also, we can talk a little bit more about how to have those conversations, because that's a big question here. Yeah, it started with me with seeing all these research studies that were sort of puzzling to me, but powerful. For example, one of them was at the Mass General Hospital with stage four lung cancer patients. The average survival was just 11 months. they all died. Uh, it's not a curable condition. And half of them they randomized to get the usual oncology care, but the other half saw a palliative care clinician 
um, in addition to an oncologist. Now, I'm a cancer surgeon, and when patients say, maybe I should see a palliative care clinician, I was used to saying, no, 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 we still have options. You shouldn't see those folks. <laughs> Without realizing that it's not like focusing on quality of life as opposed to quantity of life, and the study showed it was true. Those who saw the early, had an early involvement of palliative care clinician, um, they, uh, the palliative care clinicians would have a conversation about what your priorities are and then make sure that the care was serving those priorities. As a result, people were more likely to stop chemotherapy. Um, three, they were 50% more likely to have stopped it at three months before they died, 90% more likely to not be on it in the last month of life. They, um, re they received less surgery, spent less time in the hospital, less likely to spend time in the ICU, started hospice earlier, they had less suffering um, in the course of, along the way, they spent, had 30% lower costs, and the kicker was they lived 25% longer, which meant we were not making good choices, and what they were having were simple conversations that said, what are your goals? And what should we not sacrifice along the way? And people would say, well, don't sacrifice my ability to be at home, like my dad said, or I want to make sure I can get, to, I want to take my grandkids to Disney. And knowing that we can make these things possible and actually enable it, that even when you're sick, a life worth living is possible. And um, they had half the level of anxiety and depression. Now, teaching those skills, uh, part of Ariadne Labs, the center that I run now, is that we're running those experiments. I didn't write about it in the book, but we just finished a trial in the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute where we trained non-palliative care clinicians um, in having these conversations. And they're, they, they are about being able to say things like, I'm worried. Not, you know, you have a death sentence. We're often quite uncertain what's going to happen. But we wanted people who had a 50% chance of dying in the next year, not 100%, that you should have this conversation. And the conversation then set, starts with, I'm worried, and then say, what, are you worried? What's your understanding of with your, where you are with your health? And those questions I told you about, what are your fears? What are your hopes if your health worsens? What are you willing to go through? What are you not willing to go through for the sake of more time? What's the minimum quality of life you find acceptable? And we found that we could replicate the results that they had, um, that people who saw those doctors and nurses who'd been trained had these conversations earlier, five months instead of just a few weeks before death. More, over 90% had the conversation instead of less than a third. And they were better in that you saw half the level of anxiety, half the level of depression. Uh, people felt better, and they did not live shorter. There's so many things I want to pick up on there. You're talking about data showing that people actually do live longer after having these kind of conversations. And in the cases of uh, Bill Thomas's, the homes that he works with, less depression, people live longer. You know, this is actual data, but this is, who's listening to this, I guess, is the question, because this rubs up against insurance company policy, this rubs up against medical culture in a lot of different ways and it there's there's a part of our culture that speaks much louder than that kind of data although I think that's changing I mean when the book came out in 2014 first of all it was sort of a personal project I didn't know how it would be received it was late coming to um, I, it was supposed to come out in spring and then I wanted to rewrite it one more time so it didn't come out until the holidays you can imagine for the marketers how do we sell the death book <laughs> How do you sell the death Merry book at Christmas, Christmas Mom. right? Yeah. <laughs> and then within two months, people did. They gave it to their parents. Parents gave it to their children at Christmas. And, and uh, you know, like, I don't know what was going on. Like, you know, I remember Obama bought the book. And it was, uh, and, and, you know, that became a little political kerfuffle. And I was wondering, who was he giving the book to <laughs> for Christmas? And, the, um, and people started the conversation. And the fact that we had... Uh, that it became this thing that was I couldn't understand. I mean, within two months, it was uh, it had outsold all of my previous books combined, and my previous books had been bestsellers. The um, there were many ways the door was opening. In the course of the last decade, we went from less than 20% of families uh, at, 
at the end of life, the, the, the family member going on hospice to we're at 50% now. We actually lead the world. You know, with the images that we're the death-denying culture, we're actually uh, shifting this conversation. We went from saying in 2014, this is death panels. This is a political hand grenade to talk about this topic, to saying this is not about fighting or giving up. This is about w having control and a say over what the quality of life you are seeking and that we are bringing our capabilities to serve those purposes and that you can demand that. I think the baby boomers look at the way they've seen this experience for older parents and they said, we're not gonna tolerate that. My favorite thing is that I'm seeing, you know, one place was a assisted living community where they read the book in their book club and then they <laughs> had another meeting the next week where they then said, well, What's wrong with, uh, how do we make this place more like the places that we're talking about? And then the third week after that, they got together and then they wrote up their demands for the administration. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that is awesome. <laughs> but let's talk about starting that conversation. We have a number of questions here from people wondering about that. And the first time you had that kind of conversation with a patient, Sarah Monopoli, I think her name is, didn't go so well for you. You, yeah. you want to be on the side of positivity and fantasy on some level. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, and that wasn't just the first time. My, my common mode was I kind of, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm supposed to fix things. I'm the surgeon. You're coming in to see me. And it felt like I was giving up on someone by, being, by, by saying, but you know this is incurable and, you know, uh, on average, people only live so long and all of those things. And then learning that you could turn it aside and say, well, you know, we, let's go for the lottery ticket here. We might have the, the, this experimental therapy. This is an option that's there for you. But let's also be prepared about what might not ha work out. And I've learned to have a conversation that's about, um, well, Here's what the best is that, we, that might happen, but also here's what the worst is. Here's what I feel like is most likely right now. Um, and I've learned that I have to ask permission to have that conversation, that you start the conversation by saying, what's your understanding of where you are and how much information do you want from me about what might be ahead? And sometimes people aren't ready for that at the first conversation or the second, but you've opened the door and then you come back and I say, well, I think here's where the best, you know, we're, we're, we're in a course where things haven't gone exactly as planned. Here's the best case scenario, here's the worst case scenario, here's the most likely. And now let's ask questions about what we, what, what our hopes are, what we want to have out of it. And that is turning out, you know, it feels like I went from being across the table from you. Do you want to fight? Do you not want to fight? Here's the grim reality, blah, blah, blah. Um, to let me get on your side of the table and say, what are we fighting for here? Do you want to have your best possible day today, regardless of what happens in the future, and let's focus on that, let's give you a good day, or do you want to sacrifice your time today for the sake of a possible time in the future? And that changes as the conversation goes on, and I feel more like I can have that conversation now. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to a conversation with Atul Gawande, recorded live for writers on the New England stage at the Portsmouth Historic Music Hall. Um, well, there's so many different dynamics going on in a conversation like that, and one of them is the medical profession and culture, and we have a couple of questions here specifically about Brigham and Women's Hospital, where you worked, about why they don't, they don't use this as a policy or a regular procedure, speaking with patients who are terminally ill. Um, but I think the larger question is about medical culture, and I think one of the biggies is, as somebody mentioned to me earlier today, doctors don't get paid for conversations. They get paid for procedures. So that's a huge shift. How do you begin to move that boulder up the hill? Well, there's a couple things. Number one is, you know, from 2014 when it was death panels to 2016, now doctors um, uh, did get, uh, regulations got passed that um, do pay clinicians to have this conversation, doctors, nurses, and others, which is a huge and important removal of a barrier. But at the end of the day, I don't think it was money that was the real issue. The real issue was um, 
we as clinicians have a lot of anxiety about having these conversations, and patients have a lot of anxiety. We did a survey recently that showed that um, it's less than 15 percent, 96 percent of patients want to have this conversation, even though they find it hard. Uh, less than 15 percent have this conversation, and, and only a quarter do who've been in the hospital with a serious illness in the last year. When we ask who started the conversation among the handful that did have the conversation, more than two-thirds, it's the patient who has to start it because the clinicians are uncomfortable. We find it aversive because we have not been taught how to have this conversation. So at the Brigham, you know, it, it, we um, just now in the last year have begun the training. We've trained 60% of the primary care physicians. We just published the results from the first 60% of the clinicians. That group has also ended up demonstrating that the patients do better in terms of some of their symptoms. They appreciate having the conversation. It doesn't scare them away. They don't feel like, you know, this doctor is, is you know, telling me I'm going to die and, you know, wants me to go to death. <laughs> um, that they felt that they had more power, empowerment and control and that, um, and that it showed it also lowered costs and it's been able to be a good thing in that way. But it's a new skill and it takes time it took me time to learn how to be comfortable. One palliative care clinician asked to watch me do this sort of thing. Um, and they said, you know what your problem is? You're an explainaholic. That never happens for men. <laughs> Ooh, schooled, schooled. I thought the conversation was tell you all the facts Here's your diagnosis. <laughs> Here are your options, A, B, and C. Here are the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits. Now tell me, what do you want? And what do people say when I'd say that? What would you do, doctor? Mm -hmm. And then I was taught in medical school to say, no, 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 no. This is for you to decide, not for me to decide. Only you know you. I don't know you. And in fact, that's wrong. And what they were saying to me, who called me the explainaholic, the palliative care clinician, is, you need to, uh, you can know what people's values and goals are, but that means you have to listen and you have to actually practice at it and you should be talking less than half the time in these hard decision, pivotal decision conversations. And so you have to practice at it and develop that over the course of your training and career and you've started medical school. So we just committed, got the deans of all the medical schools in Massachusetts to commit to starting that training in medical students in all of the medical schools in Massachusetts. But even there, it's just starting this year. Well, that was the profound anguish of Ivan Ilyich, wasn't it? That nobody was talking about this experience for him. And you had a much closer personal contact with this when your father was diagnosed with spinal cancer. You got much better at the process, but it was a shared decision in some way. How did you share that experience with your father and talk about that most difficult of things? He, I remember very clearly he'd seen a doctor about having a pain in his neck. They'd gotten a CT scan, and he'd down, you know, he's a doctor, so he downloaded the, the images <laughs> off the computer system from the hospital, and he said, I'm sending you these. I want to I go over it. And so... You know, I pull it up on my computer in Boston, and he's home in Ohio, and we're both looking at these images on our respective computers, two surgeons looking at, and then we're like, oh, oh, there's a tumor here, and it was in his brainstem going down into his spinal cord, and then we're like two carpenters, like, how would you get that out? And, you know, it just couldn't, you just had to treat it as a purely clinical problem. We weren't going there. We weren't going to, like, this looks awful, and I'm really worried, and what does this mean, and all those problems. and. And, I, and it was later that I had to step back for a minute and say, that was when I finally came back to that conversation and I was visiting him for a holiday, I think it was Thanksgiving, um, which is a great time to have these conversations. And I said, what, what do you think is going on here? And, and getting, you know, like it was a moment of like, can I ask this question? And, you know, do I dare ask, you know, what do you, what do you think, um, what do you understand this, your condition to be? And that was when he said, I'm going to die with this. Mm. And, um, and we, you know, you kind of back off and you're like, well, but, but, you, but you'll be okay today. Like, you know, I wanted to reassure 
when what he wanted was just to acknowledge and somehow sit with it. I, I, don't, I don't have to fix it. And that was um, getting to that place where I could do that. That's hard. And I think that's a common experience that many people describe. Um, that uh, finally the family, you know, the person often comes to a realization about it. And then it's the family members. You know, my mom, my dad set out a plan. When he finally came to the end of life and he stopped breathing, my mom called 911 and reversed the hospice didn't call the hospice nurse. They revived him at the hospital, um, and, uh, and he woke up, and he was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, his own colleagues wouldn't give him pain medicine because it would make him stop breathing. Uh, so now he was in pain. Uh, and he signed himself out of the hospital at 5 in the morning and said, take me home. And really, listen, this is what I'm really saying. And, uh, and, you know, my mom struggled with that for a long time. Um, but, you know, it was hard for her to accept that this was his, these were his goals, and that for her, even a little bit of life was what she wanted, even if it wasn't what he wanted. I remember he was eating when he got home some mango, which he loved, and it was very sweet. Um, and he said, this is keeping me going, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He said, yeah. He said, I don't want it anymore. Well, even those who enter hospice, as somebody pointed out to you, 99% of them know that they're dying and 100% of them hope that they are not. This is such a difficult thing to look at and you've helped walk so many people through this with the book about being mortal, being alive, This is the most fundamental part of life, and so many of us want to avert our eyes from it. What what do you think the causes are of averting our eyes? Suffering. The, The unwillingness to recognize that um that there is a there is a beautiful part of the story where people um, one, one of the things that I took away um, we haven't talked about is loyalty. And um, a, I wrote about that philosophers in the 19th century talked a lot about loyalty and the idea that people had things that they live for that are larger than themselves, things they're willing to sacrifice their health and their survival for. And those are the things that give people's lives their biggest meaning. And especially as you age and come to the end of life, uh, those things that you're living for that are bigger than yourself occupy a really important space and not asking and acknowledging there are legacies people want to leave behind and you, you want to know and have those opportunities to connect and see people for the last time, say some last goodbyes, um, have the time to do that. In a way, I think it's kind of lucky that we can give more time towards the end and it isn't sudden and you you, didn't, you dis- didn't disappear before you had a chance to, to do the things that, you know, those last contributions to the world that you want to have. And I tell the story of several people who discover they've got that time, even if it's a few weeks, and it can, you know, as short as that. And it becomes this beautiful, amazing thing. It's often about speaking to children and to generations and to passing it on. And when they don't have that, you see suffering. And when they do have that, it's a kind of beautiful, amazing thing. And, uh, and the extent to which that we as families or as uh, clinicians neglect that, more out of our obtuseness than out of any kind of evil, is, I think, for our shame. Have you thought about what your final days you want them to be like and made your advanced directives? Yes. My wife and I completely disagree about this. First of all, I, 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 I want my organs to be given for transplantation, things like that. She said, well, if you think I'm going to do that, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but then uh, um, but the biggest things are I think I could tolerate, you know, for me, this is what I love. I love connecting, conversation, um, thinking, and I could be Stephen Hawking's. I could be 
uh, as long as I can communicate and I have that portal, that would be okay with me. But I, if I don't have it, if I don't know who you are, I don't remember you, we don't have that connection anymore, then let me go. And my wife says, that's stupid. <laughs> she says, why is it, you know, only you, you know, men, uh, uh, that only you would think it's important that, you know, I, you have to know who I am and be connected. Like, why do I, I don't have to know who you are and, and things like that. So you, she says, I, you know what I look like when I'm happy. And you know what, what I look like when I'm not happy. And I, it doesn't matter whether I recognize you or not. She, she thinks of herself as one of God's creatures. And that whatever happens, that if she still looks like she's happy, keep her going, no matter what. But if she does not look like she's happy, then let her go. And, you know, as time goes on, I may end up coming to where she is, and she may end up coming to where I am. And, you know, and I'll also make sure there's someone else who makes sure my organs get transplanted. <laughs> but <laughs> we, we can have this conversation now, and it will change as we face our challenges as time goes on. And, and the beautiful thing is we get to, I hope, do that together. Well, I'm really grateful that you're helping us have this conversation tonight. And I want to thank some of the people who produce Writers on a New England Stage. The Music Hall executive producer is Patricia Lynch. Music Hall producer is Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Our broadcast producer tonight is Jimmy Gutierrez. Our digital producer is Sarah Plourd. The Music Hall production manager is Jeanne Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer is Ian Martin. Let's give it up for our musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please do join me in thanking, giving a big Portsmouth thank you to Atul Gawande. Thank you.